Could you each please pronounce your names correctly for me? My name is Neve Coglin. My name is Suzanne Babai. I think I'm quite easy. Kate McMillan. Lovely. So this is my first of 20 scheduled panel discussions. This particular one's topic is going to be about sexism. So I will open it up a little bit. But basically, the first thing I want to start off with is, is just like a little bit of a personal definition for you about how sexism in the arts world could be defined or some experiences that you've had of that circ- of that, about that circumstance. Nobody's raising their hands. Oh, sorry. We're going to do that. Okay. You go, Neve. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Sexism in the art world. I would define it in many ways, I suppose. I think it's a different experience for everyone based on their circumstances, particularly insofar as whether you are an artist or not, because I think they are probably in many ways the most affected by sexism. Speaking as someone who works in a private commercial gallery, I don't think that my experience has been anywhere as difficult as female artists working in the art world. Certainly there are obstacles in my way insofar as being female and working in sales, there's a certain degree of age discrimination, sexism, that sort of thing. But I think you know, sexism everywhere. It's facing battles of progression, of being taken seriously, of being judged beyond your sort of outer appearance. And you do see it across the board and it continues to be sort of quite a superficial industry in many ways in that sense. And it's something that I wish would change, but unfortunately it hasn't. I mean, it's an industry based on aesthetics. And so in many ways that won't change, I suppose, but little by little, drip by drip, I think that we're, especially during the pandemic, it's become less of a focus. And I hope that that continues. Sexism is discrimination in in all of its different forms. And I think that artists as mothers, as I'm sure Kate will kind of be able to expand on a lot more, they have faced the biggest obstacles because there's so little infrastructure and support for them. They are effectively forced to choose between one or t'other. Kate, would you like to follow that since she brought up mothering? Sure. So I guess, you know, as Neve suggested, I think sexism interfaces with the experience of being a female artist in, in lots of different ways and different points in one's career. So I think, you know, certainly younger artists might experience sexism to do with, you know, how they look and kind of unwanted sexual, you know, advances and so on. And certainly that's my experience, but also in the research that I, I do looking into other artists. And then I think as Neve pointed out, I think when artists are in their 30s and perhaps they're choosing to become parents, that really, you know, that's that kind of the parting as, of ways between men and women because, you know, the burden of childcare often, more often than not, falls to women. And I think there are a whole bunch of assumptions about the artist as genius, as this sort of singular person in the studio, unencumbered by the domesticities of life. We really see the way that that's at odds with the experience of female artists who've chosen to become parents. And and then I think certainly that really affects the trajectory of an artist's career forever onwards. And certainly we see that in auction records, we see that in sales, we see that in the representation of artists in commercial galleries, we see it in museum collections. And so you're not just necessarily talking about sexism as it relates to a personal experience, but you're talking about this kind of weight of 
of those historical choices and decisions and the invisibility of women through the archive that, you know, that women carry with them like a sort of like a heavy sack around their, their shoulders today. So, you know, the National Gallery here in London, you know, a tiny, tiny percentage of, of female artists in their collection. So any changes that happen now really just are a drop in the ocean compared with the weight of that history that we're bringing with us. Yeah, just following on both Neve and Kate's points, first to think of sexism as one of those diseases like nationalism, like racism, like, I don't know, patriotism in misplaced. Those, in other words, this is part of a larger issue remaining unresolved in terms of our social relationships. And oftentimes, it's closely intertwined with economic disparities and racism all coming together, actually. I can only speak from my own personal experience and observations to say that sexism means different things to different people, depending on what is their sort of point of reference, their cultural point of reference. What may be sexism in London for artists who train and work and show in London is a very different matter than sexism in, say, Seoul or Tehran, which I know well, or Cairo, which I'm familiar with, or Damascus. And I think it is really crucial for us to think in terms of the art world and artists in view of who are we talking about? What collective are we talking about? What period of time are we talking about? I trained as an artist actually at Tehran University before the Iranian revolution in 79, 1979. And then I went to America and there I became an accidental art historian and happened to study with one of the, or two of the pioneers of feminist art history, Mary Gerard and her partner. And she was really the person to, to sort of show me what it means to think through feminist lens. Art history was the excuse, but there were other methods of thinking. That's when I got to know a whole lot of stuff about things I had absolutely no idea about. And that sort of accident of encountering lives of artists at the time, people like Judy Chicago starting to show that dinner party, artists and art historians pushing into the the establishment of universities, galleries, museums at the time, this is in the 80s now. It really was eye-opening. It's like I lived in another world. The revolution had really brought about the curtailment of the rights of women, including how they look, what they wear. It includes artists, obviously, and very severely affects them. But but in other words, what I'm just saying is that it really depends where are we looking at this from, which vantage point we are looking at it. I think you're so right. And I think about this all the time because I moved to London 
eight and a half years ago. And, you know, I moved from a democratic English-speaking country, a Commonwealth country, and you would think the differences would be, you know, less, I don't know, less distinct, I, I would say, but how sexism and racism and all sorts of things manifest in Britain is so different to how I grew up, where sexism was extremely explicit you know, Australia is an incredibly patriarchal country. People say what they think. The class system operates in a very different way. And I was really used to having arguments with people about sexism. People would say things that were outrageous and I would argue with them. And, and it took me a while to realise the nuance of sexism in Britain. It's much more polite. It's much more invisible. And when you call it out, you sound like a crazy person. And same with racism as well. I can remember thinking, oh, my God, this is extraordinary. There's no racism in Britain because I was used to people being so explicitly racist in Australia. And so I couldn't see it. And I think that whilst it's wonderful not to listen to kind of, you know, racist, sexist, com stupid comments all the time, I think it's also problematic because it's much harder to shift something that no one's taking ownership of something that kind of goes under the radar. You know, things like, just to give one example, when I moved here, everyone wanted to know whether I was Miss or Mrs. And I was thinking, why is everyone obsessed with my title? No one's ever asked me that before in my life. I mean, fortunately, I'm a doctor, so I could just say doctor. But just this whole kind of thing of, you know, I was only understood in my relationship to men. I had never encountered that in Australia before because the kind of the sexism that operates in Britain is very much about kind of this sort of conservative social structures that keep people in their place and that, that are kind of attached to class and all of these sorts of things. And so, but if I kind of pulled someone up and said, oh, for goodness sake, why do you want to know my marital status? You know, that's really sexist. You know, I would sound like I was a bit crazy. So I think. Not only does sexism perform differently in different places, but our responses to it need to be different too. One of the things that was brought up, which was actually one of the topics I wanted to bring up as well, which was maternity and sort of having children and things along this line. I've had numerous conversations with previous guests and friends throughout the you know, my lifetime about sort of being in the creative industry. So it's not necessarily just being an artist, but being in the creative industries and choosing to have children and how a lot of times women in particular, they'll have a, end up having a gap in their CV because they're doing some child caring for, it doesn't necessarily mean a lot of years, but just a gap in the CV where people start going, well, what have you been doing? Where have you been? And then they somehow have an exponentially more difficult time getting back into the industry when they have that gap in there. Has anybody had an experience like that or known anything like that? This is such an important issue for women in particular, as the, as Kate said, the burden at some point, the burden of childcare largely falls on women, though I want to acknowledge all those good men who take part in this process. But having said that, there's kind of a gaps in between where your career is not quite as smooth as your male colleagues. And that several, I've watched colleagues, women who chose to have babies and finally lost that tenure track position because they ran it over, basically. That's a serious issue. But I wanted to share a particular 
sort of anecdotal, if you will, my experience about this. I taught for a long time in public universities in the U.S. and ended up in a very interesting job at Smith College, a women's college, one of the few still remaining a women's college, a really highly regarded, an Ivy League of its own kind. And there, the students I had were a mix of art history and art studio students. And at the time, my son was only about two and a half, three years old, and I had dragged him on my field trips to the Middle East and, you know, juggling teaching and writing and child and all of that, while my husband had to stay in New York and work there, and I was in Northampton. The thing I wanted to share was the fact that students, both artists, students, those in training to be artists, and the art history students pointedly uh, spoke about the fact that they thought to have teachers who have young children and do things beyond just sitting at home and raising the children, there's nothing wrong about that. But to do that, that juggling act gave them a model, actually. They see themselves potentially one day having families and raising their little kids while also remaining a painter, a sculptor, or a teacher somewhere, or researcher. I think that sort of my teachers, women teachers, who really I admire because I owe them everything, actually, were all childless. A generation before me, if they were rising in ranks, they were childless, essentially, while the male teachers all had kids. That's unfair. And these younger generation really do need and did need to see potential other ways, if you will. So interesting to hear you say that because I think, you know, you're the next generation above me, Susanne. And when I was pregnant with my first child, I was 30. And I remember a couple of prominent people in the art world in Australia saying to me, oh, will you still be an artist? And I was so shocked, you know, looking back on it, it's ridiculous that I was shocked, you know, now I know how it all works. But I think then I just kind of thought that I could have it all. You know, I thought maybe things would be disrupted a little bit for a year or so. And it, it just, it dawned on me, oh my goodness, people are seeing me completely differently. And at the same time, my partner, who's also an artist, had a solo show and it was a sellout. And I had this sense that people thought, oh, my goodness, poor Matthew, he's going to have to provide for a family now. We better support him and buy his art. Whereas I was sort of suddenly this kind of risky, I mean, I don't really know whether people were thinking that, but that was this sort of occurrence in my mind. And I thought, I'm going to have to be really strategic here. So I spent most of my first pregnancy putting together this big solo show, you know, produced a publication, blah, 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 and I can just remember proudly you know, standing there with my three or four month old son, you know, at the opening of my solo show, just sort of going, see, you know, you can do it. But the only model that I thought I had was to make the process of having a baby completely invisible. So yes, I was there with my baby, but I didn't tell anyone how exhausted I was or that I'd produced all of the work before I'd had my baby. or that. I... So I had to kind of create this whole facade, really. And, you know, and now I have three children under 
two and a half. So, you know, I really had to come up with some really good strategies to continue this facade. And, and one of the things that I did, you know, previous to that, I was spend a lot of time in the studio making things myself. And I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to, I had a big commission for the Sydney Biennale and I thought, I'm just going to have to do the biggest work I've ever made and I'm not going to make any of it myself. I'm going to outsource all the production. I'm just going to stand on the phone, you know, be a kind of like a production manager with my babies and, you know, just sort of get it all done. And it was really part of this sort of, you know, it was a strategy and it's something I found my advice that I gave to younger artists to do and so on. I'm currently doing a number of research projects that look at kind of gender inequality in the art world. And I'm doing one at the moment on the impact of COVID on female artists in Britain. So I've been interviewing artists all up and down the country. And what I find is that there is this disparity between middle class or upper middle class childless artists who have just really quite enjoyed the lockdown you know, it's been a space to sort of put things on hold. You know, they've been able to research. They've been able to not have the pressure of shows and the art market and producing and things. And then you've had people who are in, you know, relied on precarious labour, you know, that didn't have the kind of the financial backing some kind of more, I guess, class-privileged artists might have. You know, they've got children in particular and they've spent a year homeschooling. You know, and it's just been an absolute bloody nightmare. So they've either made no work or they've, you know, had to completely transform their practice or they certainly haven't had time to think. My feeling is, is that even though I think maternal practices and the way they impact on an artist's work has probably changed since I had my first child 15 years ago, I still think that the burden of care still feel, falls to women. And... I still think that the art world is completely and utterly attached to a model of being as an artist that cannot incorporate the messiness of family life. And I think until we unwed ourselves from this idea of what an artist looks like and how they should spend their time, we're not going to make massive changes. Kate, you made some really good points. One of the things that I picked up on was, though, this and what you just reiterated is this idea of the art world loves the idea. And it's a bit of kind of Ayn Rand architect as hero. It's the artist as hero. It's the great big myth. And you're right. They do not want to see the messy side. They don't want to feel any, for the most part, any social or emotional obligation to the artist. Collectors want to collect art. They don't want to collect the artist in many ways. And by that, the nature of that, they don't want to feel the pressure. They don't want to know that the artist is struggling and they need the money to pay for the daycare, to be able to have more time in their studio. There's this sort of disjuncture between wanting to know the narrative, the story of the artist, but not wanting to feel any sort of personal obligation. I do think that that changes in terms of the gender of the collector. And I hate to say it, but I think female collectors do, some of them, not all obviously, do want to kind of understand and there's a certain kind of empathy towards the situation. They don't mind having that extra bit of information. In fact, a lot of collectors might buy extra work knowing that there's a necessity. 
And I don't think that male collectors necessarily have that same sense of empathy and obligation to the artist in terms of support. And, you know, I think maybe if they thought of it in a more sort of traditional art patronage sense, you know, looking back at Medici family, the way that that kind of functioned, I think in a way we almost need to revert back to that more traditional model of looking at the relationship between the collector and the artist themselves. Because if you believe in the artwork, you have to believe in the artist. And so you necessarily need to understand what support is required of them. And I think that if we can put more emphasis on that way of collecting, I think that there's elements of change that can be enabled in that sense. And, you know, as Kate knows, we did this 100% women program two years ago. And part of the conversations we were having was about what's the point of having these conversations over and over again? Because the only thing that's going to make change happen is if people start buying work by women. And until it gets to that point, and until it gets to a real sort of focus on the person, as well as the art, I don't see the potential for significant change to happen, really. I actually have a friend who is a female art collector. I should clarify that. She, she's a collector of art. So she's not collecting female artists, but she's a good. And I was there one day when a, a young artist came to her and said, oh, you know, can I, would you like to buy an, another piece from me? So this, she'd already bought some pieces. And the, he said, oh, my wife is pregnant and we, we need some extra money right now. And she, as the collector, felt some obligation to support them and actually ended up buying a couple pieces just to be able to do just what you're expressing. I think Neve just opened a very interesting point about the role of patronage and the role of collectors. That's the economy, essentially, that makes art go around. And I think the role of galleries should not be forgotten. I, we have at least a major representation here. And it's interesting that you have to specialize in showing female artists to stand out in a way. In other words, galleries don't feel ordinarily or museums don't feel ordinarily that they owe women something to make up for the lost time, lost economy, you know, whatever the case may be. But that kind of specialization around women and women artists and art produced by women, the very fact that you have to identify the gender and that itself is now very complicated too whether it's a single gender identity to be considered for the production of the arts and indeed for men who see themselves discriminated against in other words there is you know there is a form of reverse discrimination as well to be considered not to you know beat our chests for them but given history but that is an issue. You know, the American school system favored boys for the longest time, and then they changed their methods and started favoring girls. The pendulum swung the opposite way, and boys were falling behind. Seriously, you know, criminality rises amongst young boys, school-age boys, partly because they cut out breaks or they introduce subject areas that they couldn't hold boys' attention and so on. My point about this is there is some responsibility on the part of, I think, not just individuals, collectors, galleries, 
but perhaps institutions, the larger institutions, to step in. This requires all those taxpayer-supported institutions to create exceptional efforts or bring forth exceptional efforts to foreground women artists. In the end, merit, presumably, and competition is the way it goes. But it's not a level field for competition. And that recognition of that is already a step forward. But I'm just seriously not quite sure if this does not require sort of education at the bottom level rather than, you know, activism sort of at the level of galleries and showing and artists and patronage and so forth. So in a way, it seems to me that a lot of investment should go into teaching young kids about men and women or equality or balanced views towards gender in general. Totally sympathetic with what you're saying, of course. It's really interesting that you say that, Sassoon, because actually between 60 and 70% of art school graduates are women. And that's been the case for a very, very long time. And actually, I've just started this year's Freelands Foundation, which is an annual report that looks at representation of female artists across Britain. And so we map changes across those things over years. So I think this will be the sixth year of data that we're collecting. And even at GCSE level, art and design subjects are chosen predominantly by women. So there is a devaluing of creative work by boys. There is a cultural mismatch. And it's very interesting to think about how that translates because actually 10 years after graduating from art school, those statistics completely reverse when you look at the commercial gallery sector. So you have 30%, certainly in London, but also elsewhere, certainly in the US, you have about 30%, not even quite, about 28% of, of artists represented in commercial galleries are women. And some of most of the bigger galleries, it's a lot less than that. So what research shows is the lucrative the gallery, the more business that they're doing, the less female artists they're likely to support. So I think you're right. But I don't know that it's necessarily an educational thing because I think we're doing really well in attracting female you know, human beings to the sector. We're just not very good at hanging on to them. And so there's something that happens that I'm not so sure about. Could I just follow up? I totally understand your point, and you're absolutely right. This is true in many other fields as well. In, For instance, in the humanities and in a field like what I'm active in, majority of, for instance, PhDs are women, but majority of professorial positions aren't held by women. This is true across the Western democracies. And it's really puzzling to think that still in Germany, for instance, the system of father sort of professor, the patriarchal system continues to dominate academia in general. I totally agree with you on that. It's not that we don't attract enough women into higher education. I think it lies in what you said earlier, which is at the GCSE level, for instance, being in arts and design is not quite the same in valuation as being in math and geometry, 
And I think it goes further back into younger groups, in fact. And that's something about the younger ages of education that needs radical transformations. That's how I see it, at least. That boys would consider going into art school, into creative industries, just as grand as being engineers or doctors. We just haven't gotten that yet. I have to agree with you. I think that the key thing is this grassroots education really going down to the lowest level. And that includes rewriting history books, you know, making it so that what the actual literature that students are learning from includes a really broad and comprehensive and diverse range of representation, whether it's the female to male ratio or in terms of diversity, ethnicities, etc. And I think a lot of money needs to be funneled into that area because, as you say, if people learn from the very beginning that we are equal, that sets the stage for the rest of their life. But until that happens, there's going to be all of these outside influences that change and redirect them, you know, a boy might be taunted by his mates that, you know, why are you going to arts and designs? It's too effeminate. Are you gay? All of these sort of associations. So you have to be quite a strong male to really pursue it, I think, when you're 16 years old. I'm fascinated. I want to know something uh, from the gallery's perspective and sort of the sales perspective and the market kind of perspective. I, from the stories I've been told, basically, if there were two pieces that were pretty much primarily, let's say, the same, same size, same skill level, same subject matter even, that a a piece made by a man would be valued higher than a piece made by a woman. Is that still true or was that ever true? It was always true. (laughs) Okay, well, but then follow-up question, why? Because women weren't considered to be artists. They were craftspeople. They were hobbyists. They were, they weren't fine artists because, and they didn't go to the fine art schools because they weren't allowed into them. So how could they possibly be viewed professionally as an artist if they weren't formally trained? Hence, they were always amateurs. It was never seen in the same light. I think, and hopefully things have changed. I mean, Kate, I read the Freelance Foundation before joining the call And it was interesting, the discussion or the data, sorry, that was supplied around the new contemporaries, which is an anonymous platform of submission. And actually that is 50-50 in terms of male to female, which is really fascinating to see that actually if you had your eyes covered and you didn't know anything, but you were really just looking at the art, it would be 50-50. But unfortunately, the name of the artist, where they're from, knowing their gender, all of that affects you whether you want to it to affect you or not we all have our inherent biases and you can't deny it i mean i think it's changed quite a bit now and if, you know certainly for us i'd say you know we might err on the side of the female <laughs> more than the male but yeah it's historically been like that and it still is like that but i i have hope that it is changing there's actually there was a gender blind study that was done and I've just been writing about it for a journal article I'm about to publish and essentially I mean the the bottom line of of it was was when participants were told an artwork was by a woman they estimated the value of the work as being far less and this study was done across 45 countries and what was really interesting was the countries where 
there was already more established gender inequality, that was then also reflected in the values that people attributed to the work. So I think Neve is actually absolutely right. There are all these qualities that, you know, that we act on consciously and women do it too. And I think this is why we, and going back to one of the points that Neve made earlier on in the discussion about female people working in the art world as opposed to female artists are quite different. So we've got gallerists like, you know, Sadie Coles, Maureen Paley, people that are running incredibly successful businesses, but their gender inequality in the artists that they represent is appalling. Sadie Coles and Maureen Paley represent, you know, they're almost as bad as David Schwerner. It's really interesting to think that actually it's not just men being affected by these unconscious biases, it's all of us. We all live in a patriarchy. We we all do it. And what's really interesting thinking about the issue of education is that, yes, we can rewrite the history books and we can fill them full of all the great women and non-white people that have been making art all along, fantastic, fantastic. But ultimately the odd thing is, is that despite art history books being full of European men, it's women that are choosing to go to art school. I mean, on some level, despite all of those things, women are still identifying with kind of these creative pathways. For me, it's, yes, that's part of the puzzle, but ultimately we need to look at what's happening between the moment that an artist graduates and 10 years later when they're not being shown in museums and institutions and being picked up by commercial galleries. In the United States, they say that only 5% of people who go and get their master's are continuing to make art after five years after graduation. So that's not even gender related. It's just, you know, out of the hundred people that graduate from any given school, only five of them will even still be creating at all. So my, I mean, as an academic, I'm always wondering what even happens there? has nothing to do with today's panel, but it's still a fascinating thing to think about. But I I think that's an excellent point, Matt, because actually it's all, and and I often, you know, speak to younger artists and they're like, oh, well, you know, there's this thing that happened and it wasn't kind of a big deal. And, you know, they were just saying that it wasn't completely sexist. I know they can't, you know, and they might be able to list off three or four incidences where their gender impacted on their progression in their career early on. And they sort of dismiss them as isolated incidences, right? But actually they accumulate. So if you want to know why those five people make it, because they've had less of those incidences, and I bet you half of them of those five people will be men, even though probably only 10 or 20% of the people on that course were male. So it's the accumulative effect of those small obstacles that build up and they build up quicker for women. And the real kind of elephant in the room comes when they have babies. And that's when women suddenly go, oh, bloody hell, it wasn't just these small isolated incidents, systemic problem, actually, that's going to affect my ability to be in those history books. When I got out of grad school, I actually went and interviewed to be the head of a department at a small school in southern United States. I'm not going to say the name of the school because... I got there, I went through the whole process, they interviewed me, they flew me down there, they they told me, oh, we absolutely love you, unfortunately, we have to hire a woman. So I've always wondered about this sort of nature of the, the sort of some places, specifically like government-supported places that have quotas, because does that mean people get jobs not necessarily because they're qualified, but because of their gender or race or sex or whatever? Yeah, I had an observation along similar lines. It has become 
in this country at least, it's part of widening participation agenda in all kinds of higher education institutions is not just about race and ethnicity, those who are underrepresented as identified by the racial or ethnic differences, but also the young white male underprivileged, economically underprivileged British. They are a rarity in many of these places where you are trying to attract this wider group or representation of the British society. And I think I go back to the point about very young education, a transformation not in textbooks only, but in educating from the very beginning, and especially educating women to educate their children about this kind of the issue of equality. That has to be planted as seeds by mothers, in fact. Forget about fathers. It has to be by mothers at a very young age. And we don't have investment in this regard at all, in fact, as far as I know. But I had a question for my fellow panelists here, which has to do with one of the greatest signs of maturing of societies is when artists proliferate in numbers, when art is produced as one of the critical expressions of high culture, of culture in general. I think that I see as a step towards maturing, uh, towards not being the Medici bound or other hugely important areas of the world where art was produced even more vigorously, but we don't know about it, but that this proliferation is in fact a sign of a, I don't know, for the want of a better word, maybe of a spiritual growth. I don't know what to call it, but a creative growth that is crucial in my mind. I don't think we have ever had in history of mankind, ever, anything comparable to the sort of number of people who follow artistic, creative paths in life. I don't have the statistics, but I stand by this regardless as observations that we all perhaps, well, I'll hear from you if that's incorrect. So the question for you is, is there, I mean, we still live by the rules of a capitalist society. Is market saturation one of the reasons for us to think that the decisions are made more in terms of is this commodity going to gain value or not? And in that case, the safe choices of the past continue to inspire now. And one hopes that it stops at some point. So it's interconnectedness of the market economy, artistic production, gender, sexuality, race, all of these come into play. So wonder what you think, Neve and Kate, and maybe Matt. I'll just quickly comment because I'm sure Neve can talk a little bit more eloquently about the market than I can, but I certainly think the capitalist economy that we find ourselves in at the moment kind of renders all forms of valuable work meaningless and invisible, whether that's creative work, whether that's domestic work, whether that's work in our communities, all of the invisible labour that happens is being squeezed out you know, my partner and I have to both work full time. 
even though we have three children, because that is what it costs to live in London. Now, my parents' generation, that wasn't true. You didn't need two incomes to bring a family up. You could be an artist and you could work part-time. You could live in a city like London and and get by on part-time work. That is no longer possible. So I think that until we have a more equal society that is not requiring people to kind of participate in a market economy to the extent that it currently does, we are going to see creative work becoming more and more invisible and impossible, except for a very few privileged people who, because of their inherited wealth or privilege or class, they're able to have more time. And I think without time we have less diverse stories and we have less creative work and we have more pressure on the invisible labour, such as mothering, such as community work. And I think that you're absolutely right, Sassoon, to say that it is a sign of civilization declining. In terms, to go back to the first question quickly, in terms of the idea of market saturation of artists, I think there is a high number of artists producing work and there's not necessarily enough collectors to soak it up and i mean collectors take away the one percent that just collect the blue chip work that are doing it for investment i think we need to really cultivate a younger group of collectors you know there's so much money out there and they're collecting fashion primarily you know sneakers clothes and that's wonderful because those are that is art let's not deny it But in terms of an understanding of art and an an appreciation of the relationship between collector and artist, I don't think a lot of younger people really understand it. And if they want to understand it, they find it quite daunting. It's a really elitist world that we operate in. And to walk into a gallery as some 30-year-old that happens to make six figures and works in banking and you want to try and start collecting art... Who do you talk to, the receptionist? The receptionist isn't going to be able to kind of guide you through that process. The salesperson probably is going to get up off their ass and come up and talk to you because they don't know who you are. You know, there's a real sort of disjuncture in that sense. And I think art fairs are helpful in that regard in terms of allowing it to become more of a commercial sales process. And that enables younger collectors to participate. But I think a lot of this is rooted in in class and elitism not just in terms of the the market itself in terms of buying the artwork, but as well as in, in the industry itself and the way that it develops. I studied, I did my master's in London at Sotheby's Institute. And I remember, this was probably, I don't know, 17 years ago. At the end of it, they had kind of career conversations. And so I met with the head of HR at Sotheby's here in London. And the first question he asked me, and I remember it so vividly, was, who are you? Who is your family? Who do you know? And I was quite taken back. And I said, sorry. He said, where are you from? And I'm from a tiny little town called Peachland in Canada. So I said that. And he's like, well, who are your family? I was like, well, you know, my mom's an artist. My dad's a doctor. Um, we're, we're kind of nobodies. You know? <laughs> and he said, I'm really sorry. And I'm going to be brutally honest with you. And, you know, now in this politically correct world, He would never have said this to me, but at the time he did. He said, you're never going to get a job at an auction house in London or New York or any major city. You don't have any connections to bring to the table. So walk away, go into the private market, commercial galleries. You'll get a job. You'll do well. But if you think that you're going to ever make it in an auction house, you're kidding yourself. And you know what? I was so glad that he said that to me because I walked away and I was like, okay, that's fine. 
I won't work at an auction house. I will look at working at a private gallery. And that's been my career. And I've been very lucky and successful within it. But if that still exists, and it does, and I hate to say it, you need to start looking at people's credentials, not just the relationships and who their parents are. I mean, it's ridiculous, quite frankly. But that sort of classism and elitism exists. And it's another huge problem, as you say, Kate, you know, in terms of people having financial support to enable their careers to go further, to enable them to have support, to have studios, all of that. There's just so many different kind of layers to the struggles that artists have. And it's difficult to kind of pinpoint it on one thing because it's not one thing. As you say, it's all these multiple small little things that affect and alter the course of someone's practice and career ultimately. To clarify one thing, Kate thought that I think civilization is in decline. Quite the contrary. I think the proliferation of artists is a sign of a new world. And it's this creative world. Really, maybe we are drowning in it, but it's a good thing, actually. Quite the contrary. Of course, I don't mean to say that we are not in dire circumstances. For one thing, the disparities on multiple levels and issues we started with, like racism, sexism, economic disparity, nationalism, all of these are diseases of our age, too. But I do see it actually not as a declining moment, but as a transformation moment, maybe a threshold, if you will. And I think this world that is the world of creative people and people around them, this kind of a community, this wave is extraordinary. And to me, that is a sign of good things to come (laughs) or a progress, if you will, or maturing. I just wonder, though, Sassoon, whether that is what is happening now. Certainly when I left art school, there was that. You know, I spent 10 years working with artist-run spaces, working part-time, doing a bit of teaching, spending the majority of my time in my studio, traveling, doing residencies, doing fantastic things. There was the sense that there was time and resources to do those things. But I think a kid coming out of art school now, particularly in an expensive city like London, is going to not have those wonderful transformative experiences because it's just impossible. So I think and I feel like that's all getting squeezed, squeezed, squeezed more and more every year it gets a little bit harder. Who can live on minimum wage in London? Artists are moving out of London in flocks, okay, even reasonably successful artists because you cannot sustain yourself financially in a city like this. And that that is what is sad and I think that that's not just happening here. I think that's happening all over the world and I think it's really, really sad. All right, based on the idea about opportunity, something that sort of I thought about prior to this conversation was There are many opportunities these days, and I should clarify, like these are reasonably new kind of things that are things like a gallery that focuses on women artists or a grant that is focusing on giving to, it could be any sort of sub-organization within the arts, so LGBTQ or whatever else it is. I keep wondering whether or not these kinds of things, like a residency, an all a women only residency, are these beneficial or are these detrimental? The reason why I ask is because on the one hand, they're great. They give opportunities possibly to 
groups that might not have some of these opportunities available to them. But on the other hand, it also then segregates them in some way and makes it so they're they're basically sort of only being compared to their little group and not to the entire industry or the market or whatever you want to phrase it as the art world. So I keep wondering, is it beneficial to self-segregate like that or is it detrimental? It's a really fascinating thing to ask. And it's something that I personally have always struggled with. I remember I went to a talk at the net a couple of years ago that was on female photojournalists. And there were, a woman went up and she basically said that very thing. I think this is ridiculous that we're standing here in a room full of women. We shouldn't be doing this. We should just be looking at the work on the merit of the work and that's it. And at a very basic level, I agree with that. But unfortunately, when you have centuries and centuries of discrimination, we're not in a position to do that because the playing field's not level. And idealistically, yes, I wish we could just talk about artists, but I don't think that we really can. And yes, I do think that it is inherently discriminatory to operate in this way, but it's not discrimination if it's giving support to a marginalized group that has never had an opportunity to have their voice heard. I think it's giving them a leg up and there's nothing wrong with a leg up. It shouldn't be so hard line, but unfortunately, I think it, we need, uh, you know, another couple decades of this to sort of allow it to be equal because there is so much inherent discrimination and sexism within the world. And it's because what we were talking about before, because it's these small little biases, because you don't even know what they are, as Kate was saying, coming to the UK, it's not obvious. And if it's not obvious, how do you really fix it? So... Yes, I think there's a problem with it, but unfortunately, I don't really see any other way to kind of get us up to the same level playing field. Yeah, I have to agree with Neve. I think, you know, this issue of quotas, is, it comes up all the time in my research, actually. And Francis Morris recently, when they opened the new Tate Modern Extension, made a commitment to having 50-50 female artists in the artist rooms. And, you know, this seems really obvious, a really obvious way to kind of mitigate some of these kind of male biases, particularly in a collection that's old enough to have those historic biases that Neva's talking about. And how else are we going to mitigate our own unconscious bias unless we held, hold ourselves to account? And when I interviewed, I did a, some data analysis of 110 commercial galleries in London over three years from 2016 to 2019. And then I interviewed a whole bunch of gallery directors who were running some of the galleries that were doing really well, that were showing loads of women. And only two of them even knew their own statistics, even the ones that were doing really well. And then what I found is the people that weren't doing very well who I interviewed overestimated how many female artists they represented. They didn't know, they hadn't done the figures. But they often added 10, 15, 20% onto their actual figures. And so I think, as I said earlier, we all have unconscious bias. And doing the numbers is a really straightforward way to keep ourselves in check. I agree and I support your both Neve and Kate's points of views. I only want to add that there's certain parochialism to thinking about these issues within our own environments, to think about it in terms of 
the UK or London, for instance, that requires us to think a little bit more broadly. Let me just give one example. There was a moment of explosive interest comes around 9-11 events in the contemporary arts and artists of the Middle East. It's embattled Muslim world, let's recover it. Let's show the world that they are not all terrorists. So there is an explosion of interest, goes from galleries, commercial galleries, to museums, to auction houses. Sotheby's and Christie's were very active in creating actually a marketplace, putting price tags on things. In Dubai, this was shocking to see that you could fetch a million dollars for a work of a totally unknown Iranian artist where nobody knew anything about them. But what was so interesting about that market production, and here I, I think the market is really playing a very important role, was that they chose to promote at first women women artists, and largely women in diaspora. And it was largely to also go along with a political bias, which is about these are male-dominated patriarchal societies. Women are suppressed. Women are put under, under restrictive clothes and so on and so forth. And the women artists are speaking against that. It's a, it's a form of neo-Orientalism, if you will. It's a, it's a very exploitative point of view. But it was broadly exercised by people who are otherwise perfectly normal in their thinking. It's a deeply inflected Eurocentric thinking, Euro-American-centric thinking, very Orientalist without knowing it is Orientalist. And then this shifted. So it wasn't any more women who were of interest. There were men who were of interest. So it really changes gear. And I think what I'm suggesting is that we do need to think beyond artists in our own neighborhoods to think a little bit more in terms of these are intersecting markets. People who come out of universities, I live near one of them, Royal College of Art, and majority of students are women, but they are not all British, actually. There is an international scene that, that comes together in London, and it would be really interesting to think in terms of these networks across the globe, which have both the local and that global interwoven. And what does that mean then? Is it the same as, are we talking about these students coming out whom you know competing with those new markets? The artists from China, the artists from the Middle East, you know, from Latin America and so forth. Um, I'm just wondering out loud, really, not, not objecting to your point of view, totally agree with that. It's just wondering out loud about whether or not our viewpoints or our viewfinders are actually too narrowly focused. It's a really interesting conversation that you're bringing up because this kind of focus and roller coaster of emphasis on different regions does drive the market. I mean, you saw it, as you say, with the Middle East. We've seen it with the Latin America moment that was, you know, 
eight years ago. And now you see it with Africa, the emphasis on art coming from the continent and a focus on the diaspora. What's interesting about that is I was rereading an, an essay by a Tanzanian academic and artist who we happen to represent, Evelyn Nicodemus. And she wrote an essay for the 1995 Whitechapel exhibition, which was called Seven Stories of Modern Art in Africa. And in it, she describes this Eurocentric desire for African art. The fact that in terms of contemporary collectors, and I still think in 1995, it holds true for the current moment, they want to collect art from Africa that has a certain African aesthetic. And I'm saying Yinka Shanabari, Chrysophili, identifiable iconography that they can associate with art from that place. What they don't want to see is art that complies with a European Western art tradition because it's too familiar and they don't want familiar. They want new and exotic. And she said that only a true African collector can really appreciate the nuances of how diverse the art coming out of Africa is because sometimes it is, you know, paintings that look like Matisse, but they had no exposure to Matisse. It's just the way that they painted and a, a movement that developed locally. It's this, and it's happening now and you can see it, you know, people love the exotic. They love the different. And, and I'm talking from a Eurocentric viewpoint in this sense. And it very much skews and alters the way that people collect. And, you know, it does become a fad. And, and that is the market. I, you know, I'm, I don't think it's going to change because people are always looking for the new different thing. You know, now the hottest new thing, which is kind of developing is looking at art from the Americas in terms of sort of Native American art, that's quite trendy. So if you're a collector that's investing, that's where you'd be looking right now. It's awful, but that is the way that it works. Not works, but you know what I mean. I kind of, one quick thing that's going to quickly jump back to what Kate said earlier, when you were talking about this focus by looking at data, understanding how your own statistics and how you did the study of commercial art galleries in London. And one of the things I do want to say is that what came out of looking, doing the 100% women program and looking at our own data was that although we represent more women than males, I think it's about 60, 40, all of the women that we represented at that time were white women and middle class. You know, none of them came from sort of disadvantaged backgrounds. And it was something that we'd never looked at in terms of our own representation. And it became glaringly obvious our own inherent biases that we weren't even aware of. And what we realized is that you're not going to find them just by sitting on your butt. So we had to really start, you know, looking outside the canon, the Western canon, doing a lot of research, trying to understand and situate artists. And, you know, Guy Brett was so important in that regard for the work that he did here in the UK. So there are a lot of resources and, you know, the diaspora net, you can go on there and basically find any artist from the diaspora that's sort of had shows around here. So there are resources. It's just up to gallerists and collectors to really do their homework to broaden the gallery program. Okay. I've got a thing and feel free to criticize me for this, but I'm going to tell you a story that might be horribly embarrassing for me, but I'm going to tell it anyways. When I was in the United Arab Emirates, now keep my, I'm an American and I'm a white man, and I went to the United Arab Emirates, and I was teaching at Zayed University. I'm probably going to get in trouble with anybody at Zayed University for talking about this too, but all my students, well, yeah, almost all my students were Emirati women, so the all you know, 100% of my students were the female side of the school, because of course the school is physically split side to side, male to female. That's a whole different issue, but 
oftentimes my students would come to me and say, I'm presenting myself as a female Muslim artist. And I used to push back against them and say, you shouldn't be saying that. You should just be saying, here's my art. And you don't need to put those extra qualifiers of Muslim and female in front of your art. It should just be able to be art. Was I right in trying to encourage that or was I wrong? That's such a great question, Matt. So when I went back, because I'm quite old now, so when I was at art school in the early 90s, I was doing, you know, as a lot of art school students are, you know, they're finding their identity and looking to, you know, create their own narrative and to work out where they sit in the history of art and, and all the rest of it. And I was doing, you know, looking back, quite introspective work, actually. And I can remember being really actively discouraged to do that. And I lost so much confidence. And it's really only been in the last 10 years where I've actually gone, no, no, hang on. These are my lenses. This is how I see the world. And that's okay. And this is part of my story and who I am. This is an experience that I hear from a lot of female artists, actually, where there was this sort of push against them, kind of like, who cares about your biography? Who cares about your story? You know, what we want here is some really nice, I'm not saying that that's what you're suggesting, Matt, but what certainly what was being suggested to me was that, you know, we don't really care about your narrative. We care about art in that very objective kind of open kind of tradition where everyone can be a part of, of the story. And so I think when I look at female artists now coming out of art school and, you know, doing stories about their body hair and, you know, their childbirth and I just sort of think, gosh, they're so confident because I had no confidence to tell those stories when I was their age. And so I see what you're saying, but I kind of have, I have a mixed view because I feel like one of the things that's really important for artists personally, but also in terms of their career development, is to understand their own narrative and to understand why they make the sort of work that they make and to create a story around that. Because it's really important for them to be able to articulate that when they're positioning themselves in the art world. Totally legitimate. My, I mean, I think my perspective at the time, and I will have to say I've changed my position on this from what I did teach. I was trying to encourage them to not self-segregate themselves. So segregate into their Muslim art. And so therefore they're only being compared to Muslim artists. And there's then they're even sub-segregating even more into only women Muslim artists and only being compared to those. So my, my, my intention was with that, which I believe I went through poorly was to try to say, don't compare self-segregate into a smaller niche group, but try to put yourself into the larger market and sort of compare yourself to the entire arts industry instead of only these niche segregates. I think that you meant well, Thank you, Matt, clearly. These are layers of privilege, a white male artist on the top, a white female artist on the second level, other color or other identity male artists then and then the women and so on and so forth. So going back to what Neve said also, and I have written about this as well, to be actually marketable and part of the fad, whatever these waves are, whenever that happens, 
that identity marker is valuable. So for the artists who don't want to be considered either male or female or, you know, Arab or Iranian or whatever, but want to be part of the global art market, that is not yet there. We don't look at them that way. And they sell because somebody identified, as Neve said, some marker of their distinctive identity, ethnic identity, religious identity, whatever that may be. So in a way, that kind of self-segregating, it has a market value and they are almost forced to consider it, even if this, this may not be the most palatable thing for the artist. On another level of it, why not? What's wrong with her to be a female Muslim artist? You see what I'm saying? It's, you know, we don't put those pressures on Christians and Jews. Why should we put it on Muslims and Hindus and whatever else there is? I, I find this really one of the challenges, major challenges for the contemporary world in the West. And it needs to be, and the Anglophone world is particularly at the forefront of thinking about these issues. And it needs to be probed deeply and really unpacked and self-critically looked at, it seems to me. I mean, they're all really good points. I mean, I think ultimately, Matt, you were wrong. <laughs> Fair enough. And not just because she was female and Muslim, whether it was a, a white male, you know, the personal narrative of the artist is so important because their art is them. And I think when you try and separate that, the art loses its value and loses its meaning. So I think the personal narrative is so important. I don't think you should put too much emphasis on it necessarily because you don't want it to be a segregation. But at the same time, a lot of these artists wouldn't be producing the work that they're making if it wasn't because of their personal circumstances. Whether it's a white male, you know, using Bob Law as an example, a white male minimalist British artist, his personal story as an outsider, as a carpenter, you know, working for Donald Judd, all of these things, they inform his story and they inform his art. And if you don't know his biography, his art's going to look quite meaningless, if I'm totally honest. It's part of a, a wider story and you can't you really can't deny it i take the criticism that's fine that's why this is called the wise fool i i have made many mistakes and errors in my career even in academia one of the other things that i wonder about when it comes to sexism of course because we have a representative here who is from uh, the middle east is is also the cultural differences I, of course, was raised in Washington, D.C. in the United States. I've lived in the Middle East. I now live in Europe. And I find very different cultural touchstones for sexism. I don't really want to share too many of my experiences with sexism, especially in the Middle East, because I feel like I'm going to get in trouble or stick my foot in my mouth. But have any of you all seen, other than Kate with your Australia to London shift, any sort of cultural differences in it, specifically in the arts? Did I phrase that question poorly? I think it's a trap. It's really hard to deal with something as broad as cultural differences with regards to sexism and the arts and artists and so forth. It's interesting to think that we also 
need to think in terms of these different historical moments, just as both Neve and Kate talked about, say, the 70s or the 80s or the 90s and so forth in the UK, and even more pointedly about London, everywhere has these sort of ebbs and flows. It depends on the point of view of the person who encounters it. It's the difficulty in generalizing, and that's where we have always fallen into traps, the generalization about the Middle East or the Muslim world. What you experienced in UAE is very different from what you would have experienced had you lived in Tehran or in Damascus, for instance. And I think that sort of opening up to these different experiences at different moments and perspectives of individuals is really significant. I think when we started, my first point was about my personal experience. And I think both Kate and Neve talked about artists and their personal experiences, how, how their identity is determined as such. So if you have been raised in a multi-confessional environment in the Middle East, that's a different matter than if you have been raised in a very traditional let's say, Muslim household. And I think those are true with everyone, right? You have those experiences yourselves as to what is your family upbringing like. And as artists are very wonderfully capable of encapsulating so many of these nuances. I'm not an artist anymore, but I lived with them, I worked with them, and I still closely work with artists. I'm one of those art historians who learns from contemporary artists for the sake of early modern history of art, actually. That's where I get my lessons from, from artists who practice now to look back at history through their, their eyes, actually. And I don't have to only look at an Iranian to know what Iranian history is about. Artists in general are capable of opening those windows onto all of us. I just don't know how to answer that question, Matt. Let me try and clarify. It was a long-winded way of saying I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, let me try and clarify. The reason, okay, I, I'm married to a Czech woman, and I come from America. Now, in America, like, parents in America often are very much like, you can do anything. Like, that's a big catchphrase in America. Their children can do anything. You can do anything. I went to the Middle East, and I was in the UAE, and I was... I had this student, very talented art student, really quite spectacular work, worked very hard. And when she went to graduate, she told me, she said, I thank you for your education. It was great. I'll never do anything with this because my family won't allow me to. But I enjoyed it. And I was so depressed by that. And that was a huge sort of cultural shift for me because I just spent four years teaching this young lady to be a really quite strong artist. And then literally her family obligations will not allow her to ever produce art again. And that saddened me greatly. I totally agree with Suzanne to say that nationalism is a disease, but we are all confined and bound by the broader economic and social policies of the countries that we live in. And we're all bound by the social structures and labours that are expected of us because of our gender. So, you know, for example, the US is some of the worst maternity policies in the world. I mean, absolutely appalling. You know, so I think 
we need to look at some of those things. And, you know, Neve has probably heard me say this before, but ultimately you can change all the workplace laws and much of which we've done, you know, when we think about the gender equality pay laws that came in in the 1970s in Britain, we still have a 16% gender pay gap in this country, despite almost 50 years of having a Pay Equality Act. So the point is, is that you can change everything you like in your workplace, but unless what changes when you come home at the end of the day is equal and fair, then what you are able to do in your workplace and what you're able to do in wider society is never going to really change to the extent that we need it to. So I think like maternity laws, education, all of those things, gender pay equality laws, they're all super, super important. But if you get home and you have to do the second shift, which predominantly women still have to do, regardless of whether they're allowed to you know, like your student pursue a career as an artist or not, if people get home are still expected to cook the dinner, look after all the children, do all the invisible labour that's going on in those domestic settings, if that is still unequal, and it is, because, I mean, I take my own example, you know, I'm an academic, which is great because it gives me really flexible working time. I'm working from home. I've got three kids, you know, that have been largely at home all year, you know, and if they've got something on, I can move my meetings around, I can be flexible. But their dad, even though we started out as equal parents, and he was going to pitch in, and he does a very kind of gendered job. And he's expected to be out the door at nine o'clock every morning, and he doesn't get home till seven, and there's no flexibility there. So there's a whole bunch of labor that falls to me. And I think that is something that changes culturally, from place to place, but not as much as you would think when, you know, if you're just comparing equal pay laws in different countries, you'd think, oh, that country is much more liberal and supportive of women and that country is less so. But actually, it's, it's what's happening at home that makes all the difference. I just want to interject. We moved to the Czech Republic partly because uh, my wife told me that in the Czech Republic, if a woman gets pregnant, she gets three years maternity leave paid by the government. I was like, that's worth staying here and having a kid. Whoa, that's fabulous. But what about the dads? Uh, no, I do not get three years maternity leave. Yeah, so this is the difference, right? And unless men are getting equal paternity leave to women then what you end up doing is you end up setting up a dynamic that persists. So you end up as the mother being the primary caregiver for the rest of that child's life. So in countries where either partner can choose to be primary caregiver after birth, what you and the government pays for it and it's not tied to gender, what you end up seeing is that that dynamic is replicated forever forward. It's a continuing perpetual sexism almost because it's basically taking women out of the workplace for that time period as well. Yeah, and it's establishing a dynamic in the family. Indeed. All I want to say is that I just agree with Kate very strongly on this. I think if you give men equal paternity, it will change the dynamic and it will become the norm for them to equally have that career break in their CV. And that is so important because it just, as you say, Kate, it just changes the rest of the both parties' careers. And whether they use it is up to them and the relationship between the male and the female or 
female to female, whatever that relationship may be in terms of the family unit. But I think that's crucial to changing the way that we look at parents to children relationships and the way that it can affect people's careers. Just to be clear, I'm all for it. I look forward to being a stay-at-home dad. I just want to go back to what you shared with us, Matt, about the student you had in UAE when you were teaching. I feel compelled to, first, the burden of representation means that I got to do my job here. But also, I feel compelled because of sort of generalizations and misunderstandings that tend to be oftentimes embedded in not quite knowing why something happens the way it does. So to my mind, the UAE artists, female artists who did so well and ended up telling you, thank you very much, but I'm no longer going to be making art, is a minority perhaps in some ways, in the sense that UAE is a minority in the whole region, if I may just make that one very clear that this is a different world than the rest of the Middle East, the rest of the Islamic world, which is so much larger. And let's not forget Southeast Asia, which is the largest concentration, right? If I may just reiterate this point, that distinct sort of social class, perhaps, and other obligations of that student is not the same as her being a Muslim and therefore not able to pursue the matter because she's supposed to be a wife and a mother. That's not required from all Muslim women all over the Muslim world, which is you know one quarter of the Earth's population. It's pretty substantial for us to know more about it, actually. Really crucial for us to know more about its nuances. So I remember, and in fact, this came up very early in the conversation when I was a student in art school at Tehran University's Faculty of Fine Arts. The men amongst us, the boys, were considered not marriage worthy because they were artists, they were pursuing arts. And therefore, you ought to look for somebody who makes money and has a steady income. The girls were seen as well, this is good for girls. And it's, you know, it's nice. It's an ornament in the end. But that wasn't for everyone. And in fact, female teachers, whom we really looked up to, were pretty serious. I remember one of them locking up, speaking of how, what do you do with your young children where you want to work? She used to lock them up. They were really rambunctious little kids. Lock them up in her little Citroën in the parking lot of the university or faculty. And us basically play with them from behind the windows of the car and keep them busy when she was teaching. My point is that it's not one story. And it varies, depends on where you are. Some of the greatest contemporary, modern and contemporary artists in the whole of the Middle East, come from Cairo and Tehran and, you know, places where we won't otherwise think are places conducive to women pushing ahead in their art careers. So your particular example is an exceptional case. And certainly I can't even say, well, there are other, other opportunities because it's so vast. I mean, 
Muslims of Africa behave differently. And Africa is not a country after all, right? We all know that. But to think about the diversities of people, those in this country, the Muslim communities in this country are hugely important for us to consider as well in terms of how we think about artists and art production and identity and restrictions or lack thereof and so forth. Just to be clear, I was using a very extreme example. I had many students from that school that went on to be very successful artists in their own right. So it was purely a uh, strong example to one end of a spectrum. I think also even just taking the example of Iran, when you just look at the incredibly rich and different political history over even just the last 50 or 60 years, I mean, depending on as you say, what period of time you were studying there, you're going to have a completely different experience. And, you know, certainly where I grew up in in Western Australia, you know, we were a three-hour flight away from Indonesia, which was, of course, one of the biggest Muslim populations in the world, if not the biggest, actually. And, you know, a completely different cultural and religious context than the UAE, for example, you know, quite liberal in many ways and lots of fantastic female artists coming out of places like Jakarta. Last question, just to sort of wrap this up. A number of you have brought up the issue of like economics uh, and women and the arts and the opportunities that come from that. So like what can be done? Is it that we need to seek out more opportunities for, I guess the word, I'm, I'm probably going to phrase this wrong, like economically disadvantaged women to sort of help to elevate them? Is there like, what's the characteristics that we can do to try to help that particular part of this issue? Well, there, I mean, there's no clear answer in a nutshell, but I think there's several things that we can do. I mean, not to harp on about it, but collect work by female artists. But I think it's taking your blinders off, doing more research, trying to look at a wider unwritten history of art And it's easy to do that with the internet. It's a very accessible and easy to use research tool in that sense. But I think one of the problems that exists is this sort of very complicated relationship between collector, gallery, artist, museum, and institutional shows. Because really, it's when artists get the museum and institutional shows that they get the most publicity. But in order to get an exhibition at a museum or institution, the museum needs to guarantee a certain level of footfall. And unfortunately, the wider public only go to see shows for the most part that they are familiar with or that are blockbuster shows. And that's why these museums and institutions keep doing that. So the museums can't take the risk on showing obscure Polish textile artists because no one's going to show up, probably. So they're not going to make money. And then it's a flop and the institution suffers. But then how do you get the artist to have the show? And that's only through collectors buying the work, building a market, doing all that kind of the small, slow steps. But there's got to be not an easier way. And I think this is where the Kunstvereins and the Kunsthallers come into play because they tend to do more experimental work. And here in London, the Barbican is a great example of an institution that does shows that aren't necessarily blockbusters. And that's because the Barbican's not reliant on the funding from the tickets. They have City of London financing, which enables them to take more risks. So there's, there's a, it's a very complicated structure that exists. And I think it's navigating that and maybe 
thinking of different ways to fund institutions and museums to enable them to do the shows that will then give artists of a lower sort of economic or just not very well-known artists a step up, as it were. I totally agree with what Neve's saying, but if we go back a step before those that institutional space, and I should also add that, interestingly, the Sonia Delaunay show at Tate Modern, which, you know, Francis Morris, you know, was told it was going to be a flop and no one was going to come, blah, blah, blah. It had record numbers, right? Because actually most of the people that visit Tate are women and they love seeing their histories on the wall. You know, I think we also need to look at the data on some of these things because I think certainly in recent years there is a shift in people's appetite for looking at these alternate histories. But I'd just like to say that one of the really alarming things that we see, not just here in the UK, but probably in particular in the US, is that, and I've done quite a bit of research on this, is the relationship between commercial galleries and institutions. And what certainly what we see in the US, where there's almost no public funding, there's certainly not an Arts Council England or so on, you know, where they're relying on philanthropy, donations, support, often that's coming from commercial galleries. So where we see commercial galleries not representing many female artists, we see those sorts of statistics, those bad representation statistics being replicated in institutions and then becoming replicated in collections, right? So this is really, really problematic if we actually think that just something simple like having good arts funding infrastructure actually makes a big difference to these sorts of things. And then if we actually turn back on the commercial galleries themselves and thinking, you know, like, I mean, Richard Saltern Gallery is an anomaly in that it represents so many women from many generations and is looking back in history but also supporting emerging contemporary artists as well. But as we know, that is not the case for most galleries. We need to think, how can they support female artists and what would best practice look like, right? So one of the things that a gallery in London that I interviewed was doing for their female artists of childbearing age was providing childcare costs so that the artists could stay in the studio making work. And it's very simple. Childcare actually doesn't in terms of like the cost of a commercial gallery, a childcare cost is tiny. I mean, it's tiny. You know, you're looking at 100 quid a day. You paid for a couple of days a week in an artist studio for six months. It's really nothing, you know, to make sure that that artist gets that show finished and up on the walls and it's a sellout. So when you think about what a lot of commercial galleries do support, they, you know, they might pay for the production of the work. They might pay for the storage of the work. They might pay for freight of it, insurance, all of the costs that a lot of those big commercial galleries are paying for already. Why is providing a short time term period of childcare such a big deal? So that is just a really simple thing. I also think that artists applying for funding should be able to apply for childcare costs. And I think that the uh, DCMS and Arts Council England and other, you know, around the world, other funding bodies should be looking very, very seriously about the practices of the institutions that they're giving money to in terms of not just their representation of who's on their walls, but also how are they supporting and commissioning artists and what are the kind of labour frameworks that they're using to ensure that artists are supported properly and that there's not gender inequality being replicated in those commissioning processes. Neve, you brought up an interesting point that actually gives me a question, which is that that relationship of the artist to the gallery to the institution, all this, 
Is there some sort of thing that like for female artists, it takes longer to find success in their career? So like where, uh, let's say a theoretical male artist could leave school and be in a good gallery within 10 years that it might take 15 or 20 years for a female artist. Is that an issue? I'm not sure on the statistics for that, to be honest. I think the careers are so different. I mean, what I can comment on is the fact that a lot of the artists that we represent who tend to be of an older generation they're only getting their recognition now and it's only been in the last 10 years. And that's because, back to what we were talking about before, sort of trends in the market and there's been a trend to look at feminist art in general and to refocus on that. And so we happen to be a gallery that has a lot of female artists, so we've ridden the wave, for lack of a better phrase. One thing I do want to quickly say, because as we were talking, it came to my mind and I'm looking at our list of artists And of our list of artists, say there's 20 females, only two of them have children. And that including artists' estates as well. And I've never actually analyzed that. So once we get off the one, I'm actually going to look at it specifically, because Kate, I think you'd probably be most interested in this data. But for a gallery that represents 60% women, to think that a very small percentage actually have kids is the writings on the wall. I wonder, Neve. you said they are older artists, if that's the generation of artists, who female artists, who really had to stay childless in order to promote their career, to stay on track, actually. And I wonder if there is a difference between younger generation of artists, the ones I know, the younger artists I know, majority of them do juggle to raise a family as well. So it would be very interesting to learn if this is a generational issue, as I know it is in the academic context, for instance, you know, let's say in humanities, this is partly a generational issue as well. And I was just wondering if indeed, because the conversation turned around this issue of who is responsible to assist artists, women artists in particular, to meet those demands that otherwise won't happen. And you brought up the U.S. case where in recent years, the public fundings have been cut so dramatically that you really are relying on the charity of museums and mostly private money, be it galleries or donors and so forth, that in contrast to that, the British system does provide the kinds of models, perhaps, where, you know, the government money, taxpayer money, essentially, which is without those kinds of pressures of it has to make money back again. That would be probably the solution or one of the key solutions that you're not expecting the taxpayer money to have returns the same way as private money requires returns, and that institutions be held responsible for answering to that. Everybody is now being told, at least we know, diversify or else your funds are going to be cut off in this country. That has become a serious issue. We all want to diversify. Of course we want to diversify. But at the same time, the threat of losing funds is a very productive way of creating change, actually. And if this were to be, in fact, 
pointedly geared towards support for women artists, for instance. If all these great museums in this city, all of them committed a gallery to showing women artists over everything else and not commercially concerned or if the footfall is sufficient, I think it makes a huge difference. I think the Barbican issue is really crucial. The city provides funding, therefore they don't worry as much about showing on occasion works and exhibitions that aren't the most popular things under the sky, but I'm sure they will make a huge difference in the career of those artists. Any last things you want to say to sort of wrap up? So why don't we start with Neve, since you already want to say something? Just something really quickly that we haven't had time to discuss, but I think it's something that should be spoken about at some, maybe another podcast, is looking, because we were just speaking about the American approach, and thinking about Christopher Bedford at the Baltimore Museum of Art, and when he made the proposal to sell deaccession at auction works by white male artists and the backlash that he received and eventually had to pull the works out of the sale. Um, I thought when that when he said that he was going to do that, I was just thought it was one of the most amazing and important things that anyone had ever done. And it broke my heart when it didn't go through because it was such a proactive and important act. And if that had been allowed, it would have set a precedent. And I think that we would have really seen change. And unfortunately, it didn't happen. But I think, you know, I just wanted to kind of quickly mention that. But Kate, go ahead. I think it's really great that you've mentioned that kind of ambitious, potentially systemic change that we need. I mean, for me, gender is just one form of oppression within a whole kind of global, you know, late capitalist infrastructure that that renders predominantly women's labour invisible, but also creativity, I guess, reinforces class differences and all those sorts of things. And, and for me, one of the simple solutions to this is is a universal basic income so that people can have a small amount of income that gives them basic living conditions. And then they can choose to use that time to volunteer at their local hospital, their local library, look after their children, make art, write a book, contribute in those really, really meaningful ways that could happen if we had that time. And I think one of the interesting impacts of COVID is a lot of those invisible labours those invisible networks that are predominantly run and lubricated by women have become more visible. You know, whether it's the NHS volunteers, whether it's knocking on a neighbour's door to see if they're okay, whether it's volunteering at a local food bank, we whether it's cheering for our NHS or whatever it is, we have learnt that the people that we need the most, that we value the most, are predominantly the people that are underpaid. And within all of this, creativity, creative work, you know, has injected us with hope, with a way to communicate and unpack all of the things that that we've all been going through. So universal basic income, I think, would have a predominantly fantastic impact on the lives of women all around the world. Yes, I totally agree with your points and support your ideas. And thank you, Neve, also for bringing up that really brave, radical move that clearly, maybe it was really good enough for it to have happened once, even if it had to recede 
that there is such possibility available, actually. But what I wanted to say is something I said earlier, and I want to reiterate it, which is universal education at the lowest, youngest levels, and emphasis on women in particular. In other words, women should be educated first, before boys, in fact, and that women be educated to promote the kinds of ideals that we are speaking about, the things we want to see changed, they will make it happen. It's really in the hands of women, eventually. That disparity between men and women in terms of childcare does have privileges built into it if it is exploited properly. Well, thank you very much, all of you, for your time. This has been fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to the entire episode. At this point, just like every other podcast, I'm going to ask for your assistance, but it's minor. I just want you to go and take a quick second and give us a star rating or a comment in whatever device you're listening to us through so that we can hack the algorithm and try and get higher rankings. And if we get higher rankings, we get better guests, we get better guests, you get better information and better conversations. So please take a moment and give us a star rating and or a comment in order to expand the capability and the community that is the wise fool. We are produced by 5014. I am your host, Matthew Doles, and the audio for this episode was edited by Jakub Czerny. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.